Hey everyone, welcome to Taking the Pulse, a healthcare and life sciences podcast. I am Heather Hoops Matthews here in the studio, joining Dara Coleman, Next Improved Healthcare Attorney, virtually. Dara, good to see you. It's great to see you as always, Heather. And in the studio with me, Sarah, it's great to have you in the studio as a friend of Dara's and a former guest, Sarah Goldsby, Director of the South Carolina Department of Alcohol and Other Drug Abuse Services, what many of us know as DAOTUS. Uh, Sarah, you were confirmed as Director of DAOTUS by the South Carolina Senate in 2018 after being appointed by Acting Director by Governor Haley in 2016 and then nominated to Director by Governor McMaster in 2017. Little did you know the pandemic was coming. As director, you've led South Carolina's response to the opioid crisis and currently serves as co-chair of the state opioid emergency response team. And under your leadership, DAOTIS has been instrumental in helping local law enforcement agencies employ the use of the emergency overdose antidote, naloxone. So thank you for coming back. Yeah, Heather, thanks for having me back. I'm glad to be here. Last time we were virtual because we all had to be virtual. So it's, it's good to be in person, though. Dara, um, you're virtual today, but that's okay. You'll, you, you will be back. We know that. Um, research has indicated that possibly the pandemic and the effects of the opioid crisis and addiction crisis has hit South Carolina harder maybe than some other states, or at least harder than other areas of the country um, in terms of the incidence of overdose, which hurts my heart. Can you provide an update on where we stand today, um, and that maybe also how this opioid epidemic impacts our healthcare system. Yeah, absolutely. You know, so there are a lot of factors involved in where we've been and where we are now, and really South Carolina, along with all states, I mean, we're all just working so diligently to address the opioid crisis, and it's ever-evolving. You know, so when we started this work around 2014, we knew that it was 20 years in the making that this this had evolved, and so we knew we weren't going to be able to turn it around overnight. Um, you know, that said, hard work and a lot of coordination across our public health and public safety sectors has brought us forward in significant ways and it continues to drive us. Um, along with policy and the financial support that we've received from the General Assembly um, that's truly helped curb overprescribing and helped us develop uh, infrastructure for prevention and treatment services. When we last talked, um, I think it was early in the pandemic in the spring of 2020, and you know we had just seen our year-to-year -year overdose mortality really slow down significantly. In fact, at that time, um, we had come well below the national average in terms of deaths year-to-year, -year, and I think that was a result of a lot of effort across the state. Um, but since then, like you pointed out, uh, you know, there have been a number of significant things um, that have changed um, that's really driven the need for services. And as you mentioned, you know, the isolation, uh, the social and environmental factors, things that have changed in life with COVID-19 have really driven people um, to alcohol and drugs as a coping mechanism for some of those negative psychological impacts. Um, and we've seen that across alcohol and many other things. And so when we talked last, we knew and we were worried that use would be up, especially because isolation is, you know, the enemy of recovery. 
Um, you know, second, referrals to substance use services really declined during, you know, the isolation uh, months. Um, when schools weren't referring to substance use services, our criminal justice system, our hospitals, because people weren't entering in those systems as, you know, things had to isolate. Um, and so access became an issue. You know, and then, and then really, most importantly, what has changed um, since we last spoke is the illicit drug supply. And um, it's changed in the most frightening way that I don't think we understood the last time we talked. Um, and so we can share more about that. But in terms of the burden on our healthcare system, you know, healthcare providers have been overextended with COVID, and we know that. Um, our workforce uh, is facing extreme challenges in healthcare, and that means behavioral health as well, right? And so, you know, the need for services being high, um, DEOTAS as the publicly funded state agency to ensure treatment access, you know, we're spending over a million dollars a month for people to receive medical care for their addiction. And that's, you know, a fee for service um, spend um, for those folks who have no other means to pay for the treatment for their opioid use disorder. These are our uninsured folks. And so, um, you know, our resources, I will say, probably not enough. You know, we're having to cap and limit how many patients we can serve um, and to get that cost for the healthcare covered. And so it's been quite taxing on our healthcare system and it's been changing. It's, you know, I'm glad you tell us the truth, but wow, it's a tough pill to swallow. Yeah, literally. Um, yeah, that's, that's it. Well, Sarah, one of the things that I really want us to learn more about is the impact of that illicit drug supply, because we've had considerable media coverage on the impact of fentanyl um, nationally and particularly the incidents, um, the amazing increase in the overdose deaths attributable to fentanyl. Can you educate us a little bit about how fentanyl has impacted South Carolina? And if you don't mind, talk to us about what steps we can take to help combat the increase in overdose deaths attributable to fentanyl in South Carolina. Tara, yeah, this is such an important topic um, for us to be discussing right now. Um, and though, you know, we're sort of a public health agency, it's important that, you know, we have regular communication with our law enforcement partners and, and speak to SLED almost daily and absolutely weekly as we meet with SLED and our DHEC friends to really monitor the overdose and the drug supply trends as they change around the state. Um, so in the last two years, um, like I mentioned, the U.S. drug supply, including the illicit supply to our state, has become more deadly than ever before in our nation's history. Both in terms of the potency and the volume of the supply, it just being so tremendous, the fentanyl that we're seeing that we were worried about a few years ago, I don't think we could have anticipated the volume. Um, and so, you know, what our law enforcement friends share in terms of intelligence is that the substances behind what we're seeing come into the United States. You know, those precursors are coming from China. It's being mixed in Mexico um, and trafficked by the drug cartels into our supply chain for their profit. And this, this substance is so potent and so deadly in such small amounts um, 
and it's being mixed into substances as an opioid mixed into substances um, such as methamphetamine and cocaine um, and other drugs that people might be using that they, they may not expect to find an opioid in, and they certainly wouldn't expect to have a deadlier overdose effect. Um, so that's certainly having an impact, right, on, on the overdoses uh, that, that we're seeing. Um, it's also being pressed into fake prescription pills. And, and this is the volume that we're seeing, a tremendous amount of lookalikes to what would be what would look like a real manufactured pharmaceutical FDA approved oxycodone or Xanax or Adderall. In fact, it is absolutely illicitly made by the drug cartels, fake and sometimes incredibly deadly. One pill can kill. And so this is something that we were not seeing two years ago at all. And something that I don't know that we could have anticipated at the beginning of this. And so it's been a dramatic shift um, in the, the risk um, with, with the drug supply. I think, you know, what's important to know is, uh, too, is um, just the accessibility of it in terms of um, price, right? So I think three years ago, we were seeing on the street a real oxycodone um, being sold for upwards of $35 or so. These fake oxycodone pills that are much more potent and sometimes deadly, uh, very inexpensive, between 50 cents and $5. And so the volume with which, you know, we're hearing our law enforcement uh, partners say this is coming in is tremendous. They're having a difficult time, you know, getting a handle on that supply. And so that's impacting, you know, our communities. And I think what's important for clinicians and even our non-clinicians to know um, is that anyone who experiments even once with an illicit drug right now is at risk of an overdose. Um, and I think we need to you know, have awareness very broadly, but our healthcare providers especially learn to help educate patients on how to reverse overdose um, with naloxone, how to have that naloxone available, where to find it. Uh, a lot of that information is on our justplainkillers.com website. Um, but we have a lot of work to do to inform the public um, and, and to have everybody understand that really no community is safe from fentanyl right now. This might sound like a dumb question, but is fentanyl an opioid? Fentanyl is an opioid. It is, okay. And, you know, you may have heard it. I, I know it's manufactured, you know, and approved in, in America and, and treated um, a lot of end-of-life and cancer and, and uh, very severe pain patients. Um, but I think these manufacturers and cartel, you know, drug cartel folks outside of our country have learned how to manufacture it. It's a, it's a man-made synthetic opioid. It's not an, a, a poppy or opium derivative. And so um, I don't know that anyone in the world has a, an idea of how to get a handle on how that proliferates. Right. Well, and that kind of leads us to the question about barriers to battling the problem. I mean, it, it sounds insurmountable. I'm sure it's not. But what are some of the largest barriers? Well, you know, I, aside from fentanyl being, you know, certainly the greatest challenge to get a handle on this crisis, you know, there's still some things that we need. But we know, you know, the response and the... Um, the right things to do are tried and true, and we don't need to create anything new, right? But we do need timely access to evidence-based treatment. And that really means the right treatment when someone is ready for it where they are. 
And so, you know, we have a, a ways to go on that, um, especially as people are ready in different places and at different times and not having the, really the capacity for evidence-based treatment everywhere. Um, we still got some work to do. Um, we've got some excellent evidence-based drug courts in the state. Um, but I know that we need drug court availability everywhere because a lot of folks who are suffering from a, a substance use disorder, those behaviors and those symptoms of that disease wind them up in the criminal justice system. And so we still need access for treatment who get tangled up in criminal justice and, and for those who are incarcerated as well. Um, I think, you know, we're having a lot of success with the hospitals in our state who are doing interventions and medically stabilizing patients uh, with an opioid use disorder in the emergency department after they overdose. We've got some great hospitals doing great work, um, practicing addiction medicine right there and doing warm handoffs to outpatient treatment. Um, that's when and where people are showing up and that's the right treatment at the right time. Uh, but I think we need all hospitals doing this work and we've got a ways to go to help them build the capacity to do that. Um, and then we need, you know, more primary care, um, incorporating addiction medicine into their practices. And I think we've been asking for that for many years, um, well ahead of the pandemic, um, uh, the COVID pandemic, but we, we genuinely need more prescribers treating substance use disorders medically. Um, and, and it's a lot to ask. It's one more thing. And we know our healthcare providers have taken on so much in the last couple of years. Um, but we had this opioid epidemic long before we had the COVID-19 pandemic, and we will always have addiction in the United States. And so I think we will continue to ask our healthcare providers to address addiction medically, all addictions, and at the very, very least, screen every patient and know how to refer. And not only send them a card or a trifold of the, the place down the street, but let's do warm handoffs. Let's care for these patients and hand them over to substance uh, use specialty providers. Um, you know, it's just recognize again that it's been a difficult last few years. Um, the healthcare workforce has been strained in so many ways. And like I said earlier, that means the behavioral healthcare workforce as well. I think nationally, we're having conversations with all of the states. I was on the, a call this morning with our Southeast states. Every single state is facing a workforce shortage, not only with their nurses, but, but really with their behavioral health care specialists. And I think we're going to have to collectively come to, to solutions. I, I don't know that um, we're going to come to a solution overnight to have the capacity in terms of workforce and staff that the, the need and the demand uh, is asking for. Hmm. That's a tall order. It is, it is a tall order, and this clearly is a long game. And it's going to take a lot of effort and a lot of different um, approaches. And Deotis has made considerable um, strides in creating access to the life-saving drug naloxone, also known as Narcan. And so, Sarah, I'd love to hear about some of the um, successes that Deotis has enjoyed in creating greater access across the state um, for folks who need um, access to the opioid um, antidote um, naloxone. Can you give us an update about your current projects and also kind of forecast out where you see things going in the future with greater access to your naloxone um, initiatives? 
Yeah, absolutely. And we feel so proud of this work. And we also feel like it's the most important work that we can be doing right now because we just have to keep people alive. And this uh, antidote is the thing to do it. So we've been very proud, I think, since 2016. Dara was probably one of the first people I called when I got to share the news that we were able to support and stand up some programming with DHEC to make sure our law enforcement officers and our firefighters around the state were equipped with naloxone so that they were able to reverse overdoses while they were waiting on the ambulances, especially in our rural areas. And so since then, we've had um, officers and firefighters across the entire state and in every county. Uh, they've reversed over 4,000 overdoses. And, you know, we can maybe chalk that up to maybe 4,000 lives saved sure. by these heroes, by these first responders. Um, so tremendous effort. And that, that continues. And we continue to expand and make sure everyone is equipped. Um, and then we've, uh, through a lot of help with our policymakers and our labor licensing and regula regulation office, been able to make sure that community distributors of naloxone are, are available around the state. We now have 82 organizations um, that are equipped with naloxone and able to distribute that to the public. Um, in the last two and a half years, we've distributed over 35,000 naloxone kits to the public. And these are really targeting demographics who are at risk, you know, folks uh, who are, are going to touch a system one way or another uh, related to substance use. Um, and with that, we've been able to um, help our partner organizations do targeted outreach events in the last couple of years. Since we last met, actually, we've been doing the surveillance of overdose geographically week by week, and we've been able to touch on those partners on a weekly basis, driving them to more rural or very geographically targeted areas to get that naloxone dis distribution done. And so I think in the coming weeks, um, we're really going to be focusing on uh, naloxone saturation around the state. And that's really right sizing, you know, the, the naloxone distribution that we're doing mathematically so that we're looking at it on a per capita, per county, and then incidence of overdose basis, knowing that mathematically we've got enough naloxone where it needs to be to lower the overdose rates. And it's pretty easy to administer. Right. It is. And the products that we're using now, um, the Narcan product in particular, made by Bioemergent Solutions, is intranasal. Um, and so it's just like Afrin or anything else. Um, anyone can administer this medication and save a life. Well, that's um, such important work, Sarah. So thank you for what you're doing. Um, as a mom, I just have to tell you, it gives me great comfort to know that school resource officers have Narcan in the school system. Um, that gives me comfort. So thank you for what you're doing on that front. It's very important. Another hot topic has been the national opioid settlement, the, the trial and the settlement, um, which uh, corresponds to the settlement with the pharmaceutical makers, I guess about the over-subscription prescribing of it. Um, can you basically give us a summary of it um, and how it might impact, maybe help, our state's overall efforts? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so it was February of this year that the global settlements were finalized, and that was a $26 billion settlement across all states and territories with the big three drug distrib distributors and then one of the manufacturers. And so um, in that settlement, it really requires 85% of those funds be allocated to pro programs that will help address the ongoing crisis in terms of prevention, education, and treatment. And so last week, our governor signed into law a bill that codifies how South Carolina is going to manage and distribute those funds to the local municipalities and to other applicants for grant funding. 
Um, and so we'll see that evolve over the coming months. Um, but I just want to recognize, you know, this was the result of many years of hard work by our attorney generals and the local plaintiffs around the state. And it's incredibly significant that this money is coming to South Carolina. Um, because I think over the last few years, we have to acknowledge that we've done more with less. And um, these settlement funds stand to make a tremendous impact to fortifying um, and expanding the prevention, intervention, and treatment and recovery services that we've worked hard to build. Well, I'm, I, I'm, I hope your uh, agency is able to benefit from some of that because it sounds like you're a good steward of the money. Well, thank you. Yeah, we certainly plan to apply and, and hope that we can support in any way possible the best use of those funds. Um, in the coming weeks, uh, we will release um, a document with the Institute of Medicine and Public Health that we've worked on over the last couple months that gives a richer and more detailed uh, look at what the settlement funds are specified for so that folks who may not know the resources or evidence-based practices that are allowable use of the funds can have those um, connections and resources at their fingertips. Nice. Yeah. Well, Sarah, I know that um, our time is about to expire, but before we let you go, one thing that we want to ask of you is what advice you could offer to friends, loved ones, or employers of people who might be in need of help who are willing to seek help? What resources or advice might you um, offer to them um, when they are in a position to offer guidance to someone battling substance use disorder? Yeah. So first to employers and loved ones and everybody, you know, just a reminder that substance use is a disease state. An addiction is a disease state. And so in terms of employers, I would just say it's very important that employers allow accommodations, reasonable accommodations to employees who are struggling with addiction, just in the same way they would with employees who are struggling with cancer. Make time accessible for them to seek services, attend services. Um, and I think that will go a long way, really, um, in cultivating a recovery supportive work environment. Um, but for anybody who's looking for help in South Carolina, uh, deodas.sc.gov, our new website is up and uh, has a list of all the state-funded treatment accessible in every county of this state, including the opioid treatment programs that we support. Um, EmbraceRecoverySC.com is an excellent website that has lists of the recovery community organizations and support groups around the state. It's got a lot of rich information for loved ones to help them understand what recovery is. It's a process. Um, it's a process of change that can go in many directions and is unique to each individual. And so there's a lot of guidance there on resources and then ways that families can be supportive. And if anybody needs services immediately, um, we've been really proud to set up a 24-7 support line with the Department of Mental Health for anyone experiencing mental health or substance use disorder issues uh, as a result of the COVID-19 pandemic. Um, we're still averaging very high call volume daily, but it can be a direct connection to a peer support specialist or a counselor. And so the number for that is 1-844-SC-HOPES. Oh, that's good. SC-HOPES. Well, on behalf of Dara, who uh, I know would have loved to be with you today in person, Sarah, thank you for joining us, uh, for your good work, um, for your team at Deodas, and, and really for just the bold facts of even experimenting once right now on our streets could be life-threatening because of the introduction of fentanyl in what you might not expect. Is that right? That's right. That's right. 
For those of you who have been joining us today, we hope that you um, learned something about uh, what our state is facing and specifically this latest threat of uh, don't experiment and don't buy anything on the street. Um, and if you know someone who needs help, Sarah just gave us a laundry list of good resources for all of us to pay attention to. So thank you for joining us. Uh, we look forward to seeing you next time right here on Taking the Pulse, a healthcare and life sciences podcast. <laughs>